Welcome back to God's Brand. It's your host, Puzzle Making Poe, and I'm at you with another grown man book club. Last night, we put up an episode, you know, and I was just really trying to let you guys know I was not having the energy. I didn't have it. And we're bringing it today. We're bringing it all the way. Because this is chapter 9, The Wounds of a Passion from Tulsa back in 1921. This massacre had struck honest pain in these communities that we're going to read about today and we only have about about three pages to read and you know this is going to be a painful finish of a chapter um you know we we do on this podcast have a mathematic theory that life moves in threes and that in these threes we find that life is more we are more aware to life when we see it in the three so with that being said page 107 let's get this going um i really do have a lot of issues with how the author wrote this book i feel like it definitely has a bias that's put on it really hard and um you know that's okay because everyone every author is allowed to write their book how they choose to it's just as the person who's bringing this book to you at your home I want you guys to be aware that this is not how everything always goes. So, page 107, second paragraph. As these accounts suggest, considerable confusion surrounded the dead and injured in the morning world of June 2nd. The morning world on June 2nd said the official estimated 100 deaths. That afternoon's tribute put known death at 27. The figure rose to 36 over the next few days as injured men scrambled of their bodies were discovered in the ashes of Greenwood and in the outlying areas. Three were brought by trucks from the north of the city. On June 7th, a badly decomposed body was found near the Curtis Flying Field north of Dawson. Hospitals remained crowded with injured blacks and whites. Mayor Paul Brown and the National Guard doctor and Tulsa physician in civilian life had used his authority and influence to move his African-American patients into the Morningside Hospital basement. Only a a few blocks away from Greenwood at 512 North Boulder Avenue, Morningside said that the treat it treated six whites and 61 blacks on June 1st and performed 22 major operations. According to Brown, a few African-Americans were taken to the Oklahoma and Tulsa hospital. Mostly whites were treated at the Tulsa, Oklahoma and physicians in surgeon hospitals on the other side of town, according to the tribute. A total of 45 whites were at the hospital on the morning of June 2nd, but many others have been treated and released or simply walked away. The same report said 45 injured African-Americans were at Morningside. Black patients would soon be shifted to accommodations next door and to the building owned by a Negro preacher named Hill. Later, those remained would again be moved, this time to the Red Cross Hospital that became the forerunner of today's Moreturn Health Center. The Negroes were too sick to talk, even among themselves. 
Although cots touched soldiers to the place, the place space, the world reported its morning side on June 3rd, describing conditions of a previous afternoon evening. Their quiet was also due in parts of the opiates administered to dual suffering. C.E. Erling, a builder's assistant, and an older man of seeing stability and character who was shot through the leg said they did not shoot the Negroes who had guns. They shot the innocent parties Intrudingly, the story goes on to say that a Negro woman doctor appeared in the late afternoon accompanied by several other black women to care for patients. The story does not name the doctor who would have been unusually on the account of both sex and race. Some people simply disappeared with no accounting of their fate or whereabouts. R.E. Love, Negro, had searched for his family since Wednesday morning. A noted brief story of the June 4th tribute he has not seen or heard from his wife or four children one of them a baby one month old Mrs. M.R. Travis, wife of a prominent oil man of 1902, no, 1702, S. Boulder, who is in charge of the case, this case, is anxious to hear from anyone who knows the whereabouts of Miss Love and the children. It is not clear whether the Love family was ever reunited. On June 3rd, a man named C.D. Dobson pled guilty to Petty Larson on a charge of stealing clothing from the home of Dr. R.T. Bridgewater. Like many white whites caused with the goods, Dobson claimed he was taking the clothes to protect them. He was fined $25 and cost thus became becoming the first white person. As to turn out one of the few actually hauling into court for looting the black districts during the riot. Authorities do seem to have made an effort to recover stolen property in the locked room on the court on the county courthouse. The world reported were four photographed, two pianos, several dining room tables and numerous numerous other articles at the police station. There were three phonographs, two finely upholstered parlor chairs, two leather bottom monogamy dining room chairs, two new trucks, a quantity of bedding, clothing, and miscellaneous household articles, even a couple of crates of chickens turned up. The recovered items, of course, would have amounted to a tiny fraction of the possessions stolen and destroyed. But authorities 
dolefully persuaded charges, at least initially against those implicated in what police called an organized plundering exposition. Perhaps they were motivated as such by the opportunity to run some public nuisance out of town. As they were a sense of justice, in any event, about 100 whites were arrested. Most were released and promptly left town, which the authorities have known, have known what happened would probably suited them fine. It saved the trouble of expensive prosecution and achieved more or less the same end, writing the community ridding the community of an undesirable element and if they forfeited they appear bonds in the process so much the better optimistic thieving class did not limit themselves entirely to greenwood a couple was charged with looting the home of ida gilmore the white woman shot several times in the morning of june 1st one of the eight automobiles reported stolen was taken from from in front of the First Baptist Church while its owner was inside. A truck disappeared from outside Conventional Hall. A woman living on the west side of Detroit Avenue complained about a special police officer came into her house and made off with $18.47. Sometimes the search for stolen goods yield unexpected results. On June 4th, police raided the beehive cleaners on Haskins Street between Maine and Boston and found not only a stash of Pearl furniture, but the largest still ever captured in Tulsa County. Perhaps the copper and zinc still the police found 50 gallons of corn whiskey, 500 gallons of mash, and, and some konak used as coloring. The tribute especially seemed to make light of Black Tolson's polite, even as it commanded White Tolson's to contribute to the relief fund. On June 2nd, it featured a black man identified only as Mose, Mose, who in the newspaper said owned a shack just north of the Frisco tracks on Boston Ave. The tribute said the building was used as an Absecate during the previous night fighting from which blacks fired on whites on the Frisco station. Five black men had died there. According to the newspaper in the building burned to the ground, Mosey, the account continued hurled to the ruins as possible as soon as possible, where he scraped around in the ashes until he found found his soul remaining Financial asset, $600 in gold coins, melted into a single large lump. Ashow is glad gold won't burn. Moses was quoted as saying before returning to conventional hall, content to go to the fairgrounds with in others homeless Negroes. The story lighthearted tone implies that something is not quite right with Moses and... His $600, but then 
what else could be expected from convincing hapless Negroes? If tribute leaders found Moses' story assuming they must have been rolling in the aisles over the June 4th account that blacks collecting their possessions at police headquarters. A bit of humor was injected into the proceedings this morning when Harrison Rector, Negro identified as his own a brown handbag. It ought to be full of clothes, he told the police. When open, the bag was empty. Give me it and let me get out of town, he said as he reached for this handbag. Martial law ended on the afternoon of June 3rd. The chambers of commerce, perhaps influenced by the Reverend Holing Cookie, Cookie, Fury warned that this thing was not over, urged Barrett to extend military rule at least a week. He dismissed their concerns and ordered the Tulsa-based National Guard units to leave as placed on June 4th. For summer camps at Fort Still, I believe that all danger of future disorder is entirely removed throughout the county, said Barnett. I recommend that the people of Tulsa discount 99% of every rumor they heard. For the National Guard not had found any truth in a single one of the rumors we have run down. It's getting intense. To calm the jittery public... Executive Committee asked Patrick Hurley, the local hero, hero and future Secretary of War, to recruit, recruit 50 battle-tested veterans as a sort of colossal military obscenity. Attached to the Sheriff's Department, Hurley asserted reporters that his men could quietly and quickly put down any riot that interpreted after the last National Guardsman left out of town on the morning of June first, June fourth. Hurley was one of Tulsa's most respected citizens. As his chief lieutenant, he chose another, Horace Gurley Barner. An oilman and cattle rancher who at one time had to deal with a criminal and lawless pioneer element. I believe this force is capable of dealing with virtually anybody of lawbreakers that might be disposed to start something. Hurley said there isn't a man in, a, in the bunch who isn't faced death in probably a dozen different ways in mob wood told or no terror for them. In fact, the greatest danger to the great population seem to have been from all the armed men going about in military uniforms. On the evening of June 5th, three whites returned to Tulsa from a, a, pic a picnic near Sand Springs. They were run off the road and fired upon by a carload of men 
they took for hijackers, the two men dressed as soldiers in civilian clothes claimed to be American legioners on patrol legioners and patrol for roving bands of Negroes. A band named R.L. Osborne was fatally wounded in the frackles and his sister seriously injured. Although Osborne's family pressed Governor Robinson and other officials on the matter, no action against the supposed guards seemed to have been taken. To the handfuls of blacks residents who managed to remain in their homes through the mayhem and destruction were soon added an increasingly number of hardly souls pitched.